This is a Sandy Boy Productions podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to All Have Another Podcast with Lindsay Hine. I'm your host, Lindsay. Thank you so much for being here today. Today, you're listening to episode 373, and my guest is Steve Magnus. Steve is a performance coach. He's a writer, and he's the author of several books, including Peak Performance, The Passion Paradox, and The Science of Running. He's also the co-founder of The Growth Equation. You've heard from his business partner on that, Brad Stolberg, on this podcast several times. And uh, Steve was the track and cross country coach for the University of Houston for quite a while. He also has a history uh, back in the day. He worked with the Nike Organ Project. And we get into that a little bit because he was one of the whistleblowers uh, with everything that went on with Alberto Salazar. And it was something I didn't want to spend a ton of time on. However, I felt like it was really important to talk about because it's a big part of his story. And so we touch on that and we talk about the evolution of his own running as well in this episode. Steve is super well-researched and educated and has so many great things to say. It was really a joy to talk to him in this episode. These are the kinds of episodes I just want to bottle up and keep forever. And I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to talk to people like Steve. So I really hope you enjoy the episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. If you do love it, please share it with your friends or leave us a rating and review on iTunes. We we give away a pair of Gooder sunglasses every single month for new ratings and reviews. So just send us an email and let us know if you left a rating and review and we uh, announce those at the end of every month. However, I forgot to announce it last month. So this month, I want to shout out to Jenna L. She is our new rating and review for March that is winning the Gooder sunglasses. Jenna says, my favorite running, cooking, and driving buddy is Lindsay on this podcast. She's a natural uncovering the deep stuff through normal conversation. So Jenna, send me an email, lindsay at sandyboyproductions.com, and we will get you your Gooder Shades mailed to you. Friends, this podcast is sponsored by Gooder. If you are not already wearing Gooder Shades, make sure you check them out. They are functional, fashionable, and they don't slip around when you're running. They have so many fun styles. I love the aviator shades and the breakfast run to Tiffany's. I'm always wearing those. You all can save 15% when you go to gooder.com slash another and use the code another one five for 15% off your order. All right, friends, enjoy my conversation with Steve Magnus. All right. Well, today on I'll Have Another, we have Steve Magnus on the show. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thanks for having me. This is a true honor. I'm really excited to have you on the show. And quite frankly, it is overdue. <laughs> well, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it's been really fun. You know, I've followed you for a very long time, known lots about your career, but it's been fun like prepping for this interview, diving in a little bit deeper and getting to know you a little bit more. I mean, the the wide array of work that you do, I like, how do you do everything that you do? As a mom, I get that question a lot. But honestly, I'm looking at all your work and I'm like, when do you do all these things? 
Well, the secret is there. I, I don't, me and my wife don't have kids yet. So that's how <laughs> it gets done. Um, but, y- you know, I, I just like, like, my passion is to follow and do interesting things. So, like, you know, if it's interesting to me, I just have this personality, just like I did with running, where it's like, okay, like, let's go all in for a minute. So because of that, I just try to use that to my advantage and go all in and get lost on things that are actually productive versus, you know, spending too much time on the internet. Okay. I love that you just brought that up right off the bat because that's something I've been thinking about a lot. I know you read like tons of research and things like that. I I spend a lot of time listening to podcasts and reading books. I don't necessarily read research papers like you, but I do ingest a lot. I love reading in the morning. I love to spend, if I could, I would spend two hours reading before I do anything else. But it's like, it's too much time, right? I cannot spend that much time doing it. And sometimes I feel like, I'm spending so much time ingesting that I want to spend more time outputting, but um, I love the input so much. But I know that I thrive off the creation process as well. So finding that like balance of bringing in and putting out is kind of challenging for me. Oh, yeah. I mean, that that's like the biggest challenge I think of uh, for creatives because like and there's research on this, actually. You have to spend a lot of time exploring, which is like doing the reading, listening to the podcasts, whatever, exposing yourself to ideas. But then if you just stay on that exploration phase, like you don't get to the other side, which is what they call exploiting, which is like turning that into something like creative and useful. So a lot of my work now is like trying to make sure I'm finding that balance for me. And I think that's important is what is that balance, you know, for you? And I have to remind myself that because I'm like you, I get lost on the if I could, I'd spend all my day like reading, going on walks and listening to podcasts and and just like consuming information because it's interesting. Um, But I have to be very intentional. And I have a notebook for this that I carry around and I'm like, this is my ideas, like turning these things into something. Yes. And I'll I'll just like jot down like, oh, you know, I listened to this or read this. This might work really well as a article idea or a book idea. And I'm, I'm not going to get to everything. But just like having that thought of, you know, mm-hmm. that reminder of, well, what could I turn this into? What could this um, become a product of? I think that keeps me a little more balanced. Well, and the action piece is sometimes where I get paralyzed, whereas like, you know, you're going out on a walk or a run. I mean, how many times? And I'm sure listeners can agree with this. Like you're on a run, you're five miles in, you're like, I have the best idea ever. This is like the best series for the podcast or X, Y, and Z. And you get home and whatever your life is for me, it's like my kids need a million things or whatever it is. And I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to remember that. I'm going to think about that and I'm going to execute. And if really I spent 30 dedicated minutes to that thought, you know, the next day, I'd probably get somewhere with it. But a lot of times I just like kind of move on and think, well, that was, that sounded glamorous and fun while I was running. But like, here's real life. Yes, that's like, there have been so many moments, especially when I'm in like the, the heart of book writing Mm. where I'll just go on a run. 
and I'll be like stuck on a chapter and not sure what to do. And the idea just pops into my head on the run, right? It's the creative process. It's great. But then I spend the rest of the run, the next like four or five miles, whatever, like trying to force myself to not forget this idea. Right, right. (laughs) That's like one time I I was talking to Des Lennon about this once and I was like, I was like, do you stop when you have an idea and like take out your notes on your phone and write it down or whatever? And she's like, no, I just keep writing. I'm like, sometimes I really have to stop and do that or else I will forget. And if I think it's gold enough, I'm like, you got to write, you got to stop and get the notes app out. Do you ever do that? So I hate running with my phone. So I never have that. But when I when I'm again in book writing mode, what I did for a while, because I knew this was going to happen is I just like tuck a little uh, small piece of paper and then like a little pin in the side of my like in the key holder of my shorts. And I would stop because I was like, I know I'm going to figure out this this thing I'm stuck on. So I got to have a way to like remember it. Genius. I think it was Katie Arnold who wrote the memoir Running Home who said the same thing, which I don't really picture Katie Arnold being up in the mountains for three hours with her cell phone either. (laughs) And I think that she's I think it was Katie that said she actually like wrote it down with a pen. And I can see that being super helpful. Um, Okay, Steve, we have to get into like so much in this hour. So uh, first, I want to know, how did you meet your wife? You mentioned your wife. Yeah, we met through through running. Okay. So she ran in college as well. And then post collegiately, she lived in she's a teacher in the Houston area where I live. And, you know, the running community is small. So you meet other good runners and you start going on runs. And, and that's how it kind of started for us. Yeah, and you got married relatively recently, didn't you? Yeah, actually, at the very beginning of the pandemic. So oh, that's it interesting. Was, yes. So it, it was wild. And, um, but we made it through and adjusted it, the wedding and everything, and it turned out great. So So the wedding was like once pandemic had started. Yes. Oh gosh. So it was like in the very beginning when people were still clueless and had no idea and we couldn't like get out of it because it wasn't technically a disaster yet. So it was very very stressful on top of, you know, it being a wedding, oh, but, sure. um, you know, it, it tested us and we made it on the other side. So, yeah, I want the, it, it'd be interesting to hear like in five years, 10 years, like people that did get married and have these like big life changes like that, or had a baby or whatever it may be during those beginning times of the pandemic, like how that affected their marriage or affected their first few years of parenting and things like that. I'm sure you've thought about that. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it's it's like with anything like uh, any sort of big challenge or trauma brings an opportunity to like learn and grow. So, you know, that's what we tried to see it as. We'll, we'll, we'll see in five, 10 years if uh, if it helps or not. But I'm, I'm going to say it did. Uh, have you read the book, The Book of Joy by it's Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu, but it's written by somebody else. Have you read that book? No, I never have. Okay, put it on your list of all the reading you're ingesting. But I actually was reading a chapter like specifically on that topic. It's like you don't want to like, you know, suffering sucks. It's a terrible thing. And people go through really hard things. But the chapter I'm reading is specifically about like what we actually get out of the suffering and how much we can grow and learn from it, even though it's hard. Um, and yeah, that's just been speaking to me. You should read that book though. I bet you would like it. Oh, I'll check that out. No, that sounds right up my alley. Cause I've, I've been looking into that stuff a lot cause there's this whole area of, um, uh, post-traumatic growth, right? 
where it's like you go through very difficult things, but some people are able to come out on the other side. And we're talking very, uh, you know, harrowing trauma and, you know, grow and develop from it. And I think that's such a fascinating thing because it it sends kind of a message of hope mm-hmm. while you're going through like very difficult challenges. So if we can tap into that and capture that, I think society would be a lot better. Okay, last comment on that. And for listeners, you might want to write this down because this is a book everybody needs to read. And you mentioned Ryan Holiday. And I know, I think I heard from him the recommendation for this book, Man's Search for Meeting, Victor Frankel. Have you read that? Oh, it's fantastic. Yes. It's like if I was going to tell people five books to read, (laughs) I'd have to really think about that list. But that 100% is on the list. Yeah, no, it's it's one of my favorite books of of all time. And the funny thing about that book is if I'm remembering correctly, he essentially kind of had it in his head while he was going through the Holocaust mm-hmm. and then afterwards, like after he was free and all that, wrote it in like something like two or three weeks. Wow. Talk about like trying to remember something when we were talking about <laughs> right, the run. Right, exactly. Oh, it's just a beautiful book. And it really, I mean, it, so many things in life can put our own life into perspective, but that really will put your everything you're going through into perspective. Okay, running career, coaching, writing. Let's start with running. Being, um, we're going to go way back, Steve, so that listeners who might not have, you know, scoured your story for four hours like me before this interview can learn a little bit. So if you don't know Steve, Steve was a 401 miler in high school, which is a massive deal at the time, like just kind of a phenom, right? Um, went on to run at the University of Houston or Rice. Where's Rice going there? Yeah, so I went to Rice first for two years and then transferred to Houston afterwards. Okay, ran super high mileage in high school. I'm curious now, like looking back at that, would you recommend a high schooler run as much as Steve Magnus was running in high school? (laughs) Uh, No, I would not. (laughs) And how much were you running? Can you tell the listener? Yeah, so I got up over 100 miles per week in high school. Crazy. yeah. So, and I think I was averaging like 85 to 90 miles, like over the entire senior year of my high school. So I was running a ton. I mean, looking back, just like, can you, can you process that for me? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it's my personality, you know, it's like I talked about at the beginning is I have this kind of obsessive personality where if I go into something, mm-hmm. I go like all in on it. Um, and I have to be very careful of that. But when I was a high schooler, like I didn't know any better. So I loved running. I wanted to get better. And I just kept running more until, you know, I was running 90, 100 mile weeks. And I thought it was totally normal and totally, you know, fine because like I was enjoying it. You were probably staying out of trouble, too. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I mean, I was I was dead by the end of the day. I mean, I was asleep by like, you know, 10 o'clock as a teenager because I'd run 16 miles that day or something like that. Tell me what you're like. Tell me about your parents and like what they thought about all that. I mean, my parents thought it was a little crazy, but to their support, like they didn't push me. They didn't like they weren't on me to like try and win or whatever. They were just like, look, if this is your thing, like we'll support you. Go for it. And 
You know, I, there were many times that my parents, my siblings, like got really annoyed at me, especially on family vacations, because I would <laughs> still run that much. And I, I was probably a pain in their ass. But, <laughs> you know, um, we made it through. So they were super supportive. Uh, it's funny that you bring that up because my husband's not like that anymore. But when he was super seriously like training, trying to get faster in the marathon, I like... And I did this for a while, too. Like, even on vacations, I'd be like, we got to get our 20-mile run in. Now, no way in heck would I do that. I'm like, I want to exercise on vacation because it makes me feel better. And, like, I will enjoy my vacation more. But I'm not trying to do long runs on a vacation. Let's be real. Um, But we were just talking about this the other day because we went to California um, for a wedding, for a trip. You know, a year after our first son was born. And I remember we went hiking in the woods at John Mur- John Murr. I probably say that wrong. I went with his parents. And I was like, what? And his mom has since passed away. So it was like this kind of a special hike looking back, right? And I was looking back at pictures. And I was like, where were you? Why aren't you in the picture? And he's like, oh, I was doing my long run. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like, you know, at the time it was fine and a perfectly normal thing to do. He then... and And... Also, a week later, I was having a major surgery, like a double mastectomy. It was a big, big season in our life. And then the week after my surgery, he went and tried to race the Chicago Marathon (laughs) and totally bombed the race. And so it's just like looking back at things like that in your life, you're like, did I really need to go do that long run? Like, could I have enjoyed that hike with my family instead? But you grow and you change and you evolve. And I don't know. I mean, it's fine that he did the long run, but it's so funny looking back. You know, perspective is a wonderful thing. Totally. So. Totally. Um, okay. So off me, back to you. Um, you end up like 401 ends up being your fastest time, right? So mm-hmm. I just want to dive in there real quick. Like, processing that like when once you get into competitive running you're running with Alan Webb and all these guys and decide like this might not be what I really want to pursue with my life like the me being a pro runner and all that yeah you know I think it was tough because running was so much of my identity at that point um as I said like I'm obsessed like yes I went to college yes I did fine but I didn't care about anything Mm. like I was just trying to stay, you know, be eligible so that I could compete. And then afterwards, I had very little interest in any sort of career. So I went to grad school so that essentially I could train with Alan Webb out there. So it was just like an excuse to keep training because I'm like, well, it'll look like I'm productive. I can tell my parents and family that I'm working towards something, but it's really just delaying things so that I can keep running. But at some point, you just come to the realization that, like, well, running is fun. Um, I've got to do something in my life. And at that point, I was struggling because you have these expectations. You're run, you know, I ran really fast as a high schooler, didn't get much better. And, like, it's tough to, to grapple with something that you've put a, a ton of work in and essentially gone all in and not achieve your goals. So at that point, while I was trying to figure out what to do, I started like volunteer coaching high school kids. And I quickly realized that the joy of helping them improve, like took away that like Mm. struggle that I was dealing with 
of like not seeing myself improve and like having my identity around running. So after working with, you know, some high school kids, it really cemented in my head that I was like, okay, I want to, I want to coach. Like I want to help other people achieve their goals, get better and, and do all those things. And, and you are like, you know, the science of running the book that you've, you've written, like you are all in, like you, you know, a lot. (laughs) like let's just say that do you ever feel like ah like I put I'm putting this together for all these people are you ever like regretful or like annoyed that you didn't put it together for yourself I I feel like kind of an ass asking the question that way but do you hear what I'm saying yeah no I mean I see I I hear you and yeah like when I was first in getting into coaching of course I think I was like, oh, man, like, why did I do this? Like, I shouldn't have done that. Like, if I would have done X, Y, Z, like, I would perform better. But I think you have to, like, integrate your own challenges and maybe failures into your own story. Mm. And the way I kind of did that is, like, no, it's great I went through all these experiences, both, like, from an overtraining standpoint, from, like, a psychological standpoint of, like, having running being the only thing because – that allows me to pass that knowledge down and hopefully like have people or athletes or other people like avoid the same pitfalls that I did. So that that kind of became like a little driving force of like, well, I know what I kind of did wrong and I know what I probably should have done right. So let's pass that knowledge down and make sure that others don't fall into the same traps that I did. I love that. Yeah, it's like a it's like a give back kind of thing too. I I remember talking with uh, Ryan Hall about that exact same thing, you know, and just the fact that like, yeah, there are things that like you could have done differently or maybe should have done differently. I I hate the word should, to be completely honest, but, um, but now the fact that you have all that valuable knowledge in your head and can share it with other people so they don't do those same things or they can do it this, this way or that way, um, is just, it's such a, it's such a beautiful thing that you can give back to those people. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's it brings a lot to me and hopefully brings a lot to them. And I think, I don't know, I think anytime you get stuck looking at the past and the should-ofs or the would-ofs, like, it's not good for your mental health. So, like, you know, you hopefully learn from it, integrate it into your story, and then, like, pass down the knowledge that you can. All right, friends, a quick break here. You know how much I love the Donna Foundation and the Donna Marathon Weekend. In fact, I hope you will already get it on your calendar to join us in 2023. But they have a Mother's Day 5K coming up that I'm going to do virtually here in Raleigh. We're actually going to have a group of people do it here in Raleigh, um, just kind of near my neighborhood. So actually, if you're local to the area, send me a DM on Instagram, lindsayhine626, or email me, lindsay at sandywayproductions.com because we'd love to have you join us for this virtual 5K. Super casual. But this race supports the Donna Foundation, which helps helps people who are walking through a breast cancer diagnosis. And it's May 7th, 2022. If you are near the Jacksonville area, Jacksonville, Florida, you can go do it in person. If not, register online for the virtual event and know that you are supporting this amazing cause. Go give yourself a 5K time trial. See what you can do. Go to breastcancermarathon.com. Use the code Lindsay10 for 10% off your registration. And again, if you're local here to the Raleigh area, hit me up and do the race with me. 
I would love to have you. All right. Enjoy the rest of my conversation. Um, okay. So talk to us about the process of stepping down from University of Houston and like what your career is happening. What's happening in your career now? Yeah. So I was at Houston for, for nine years and then obviously I graduated there from my undergrad. So it was a really awesome, fun time. Um, but it just came to the point where I loved working with the kids. I love the coaching aspect. I didn't love as much the paperwork aspect mm. of uh, college coaching. But coaching is a all a college coaching is all in type of business. Like it takes up so much of your time. And as I said, I want to be committed and where my career was starting to go in terms of like book projects and speaking and other opportunities, working with other sports and businesses and organizations, like I was juggling, I don't know, like 10 things in the air at once. So like something had to give. And after thinking a lot about it, like the college coaching was the thing that mm. was taking up the vast majority of my time. And like preventing me maybe a little bit from like exploring other things that I wanted to. So now I'm in this phase of, as I said, at the, the top of this podcast, like I love exploring interests and that's kind of my calling. So now I'm in this phase of like serial dabbling on on things. So I've got a book project that'll come out in a couple months. I've got. You know, I'm doing some consulting work with various professional sports teams. I'm working with post-collegiate runners, still coaching them and, and doing that thing. So I'm still juggling a lot, but I don't have that one thing that occupies all my time so that I can kind of compartmentalize and, and do a bunch of different things, hopefully well. And how are you feeling about that? Has it been emotional at all, leaving? I mean, it, it definitely was at first. I mean, I feel like I was, I felt so, it, it almost feels like you're abandoning your kids. Yeah. To a degree, because like you build up these relationships and like, you know, you're committed to them and get to know them and you've been responsible for them and you told their parents like you'd take care of them in college and help guide them. So that was really, really difficult. Like that was the hardest part. Um, and you know, I tried to just be honest and like have conversations with them on like, hey, this is this is why it's not you like this is part of being adult is like we get put in these situations sometimes and we have these forks in the road and we got to do, you know, the, what's what we think is best. And I can't predict the future, but like this is what it is. And then you just try and reassure them. And, you know, um, as I told them, I'm like, I'm not dead. I'm still here. Like, if you need anything, if I can help in any way, like, just text or call and I'll be there. That is one of the hardest things to do. Like, went to, like, leave something when it's not necessarily bad. And it's kind of like your identity is wrapped up in it a little bit, right? If you've been doing something for nine years and it's taking the vast majority of your time, but you know it's time to go. I think people linger, right? Did you linger at all? Like, did you, do you think that you did this at the right time? Or are you like, man, well, here we go with the should again. But it's like, I don't know. We want to hold on to things, even if they might not be a fit for us anymore, because that's just where our identity fits in. Yeah. You know, I think I did for a little bit. It's been in the back of my mind just as, 
uh, other projects and, and things that I've I've done have grown. Um, but I think really the pandemic, like mm. with a lot of people, kind of forced this reflection piece. Totally. You know, and, you know, I was for, for one, you know, for at the beginning of the pandemic, our college season was canceled for a while. So I got this taste of what it was kind of like to not, you know, be traveling every weekend and not showing up to practice and work and really and doing all that stuff. So in that way, it kind of like forced that reflection piece. And even there, I went back for another year. Um, just to kind of, you know, because I didn't, I think at that point I went back because I was like, I don't want to end where the fact we just went to our college, you know, conference indoor meet and then had nationals canceled. And then it's like, but it, it just felt like unfulfilled. Mm-hmm. So I think going back for another year allowed me to kind of get that peace and do things a little bit differently and, and come to terms with it a little bit more than just like that sudden shift. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, working, consulting with other sports teams, and I know that's part of your work now. Talk to us a little bit about what you do when you're consulting with those teams. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, I used to think like, oh, running is is running. Like it's its own unique thing but then when you start branching out into the rest of the world you realize that performance is performance and the same problems that we struggle with both like physically and psychologically are the same things that other people do other sports do so it's not like unique to us to struggle with like identity or overtraining or anxiety before a race or like working through really difficult problems or difficult times in a competition like it happens everywhere so what i have you know kind of found myself doing is working with various you know professional sports teams throughout different sports on a lot of that like um performance side stuff like how do we put people in the best place to uh, physically and psychologically perform, whether that's on the basketball court or on baseball, if you're a pitcher, whatever it is, like, how do you get the right, you know, set yourself up to uh, perform to your best of your ability? And, you know, the lessons translate. I try to, I'm like now known as bringing way too many running analogies to everything. (laughs) So I, tr- I try to branch out, but it's still like my uh, it's still my default. OK, so is this when you do this consulting, is this in uh, collaboration with the growth equation with Brad Stolberg? Yeah. So Brad and I do a lot of work with um, because our, our whole deal is when Brad and I started working together, you know, we said, hey, here's all these lessons that we kind of learned from sports and athletics and running and all this stuff and a little bit in our our working life, Brad more so in his consulting life. And we said, you know, this stuff applies to everything. Like it's not just in our narrow little field. So over the last, gosh, I don't know, five, six years that we've worked together, we've kind of just kind of beat that drum and expanded and expanded. And now we're at a place where, again, we're working with sports teams or even like, you know, major businesses and corporations trying to bring some of these lessons that, again, we largely learn from running and um, apply them to other fields. 
I mean, I got to be honest, when I was like getting ready for this interview, even this morning after I got my kids to school, I was like trying to be super organized and manage my time super well. And I think that's because I've like listened to your podcast and paid attention to the work that you and Brad have done. You know, Passion Paradox. I've read I've read that. I've read Peak Performance. I've read all these books. And um, I don't know, sometimes you get lost and you forget about those methods and those things that you teach. But just knowing I was connecting with you today motivated me to be more efficient. <laughs> well, I'll take that as a win. Yeah. I'm glad. Um, but that that's kind of what it is. I mean, we're all human. Yeah. So we all, we all get like dragged off to other things. Like even the best performers in the world, like we tend to think like, oh, you know, they're locked in. They always are on. They're always like want to get out the door and run. But it's just not true. They just they struggle with the same things that like you and I do. So a lot of it is just, you know, sometimes having that reminder of like, oh, yeah, you know, I should do this instead of, you know, spending this 20 minutes dabbling on my phone or scrolling or whatever it is. Can you talk about, um, I was kind of looking through like some of the different articles you've written and things like that. Can you talk about what identifying the limiting factor is both in like training, but also for me, I'm thinking about with work, like what is my limiting factor that's keeping me from like going to the next level? What is someone's limiting factor? Yeah. So in, in training, um, we all kind of get caught up into like, oh, what's the best training system? Like, should we run high mileage or high intensity and all this stuff? But the way I like to look at it is like as you grow and develop as an athlete, your limiting factor, that thing that is like the kink in the pipe in terms of your performance shifts and changes. And your goal as an athlete or as a coach is to figure out, OK, Where's that weak point that is like preventing me to take that next step? And it could be something as simple as, you know, my endurance isn't as good as it should be, or my resistance to injury isn't as good, or my pure basic speed isn't where it needs to be. You know, the classic example is if I'm going to run a four minute mile, I better be significantly faster than 60 seconds in a 400, right? So like that simple idea, I think, is really powerful because it tells you, hey, like, where do I need to, like, put my focus and attention in this moment so that I can, like, get rid of that kink in the pipe and, you know, then that factor will shift. And I think the same thing applies to to our work life. Like we all have something that we struggle at that, like, gets in the way of performing at whatever we're doing, whether that's writing, whether that's podcasting, whatever your job entails, you know? So for example, my limiting factor in writing at this moment, while I'm finishing up a book is like locking in time to give me like that deep focus, right? I know if I I can sit down for two hours, then I'm going to finish this stuff. But the problem with all these other commitments is like finding that time. So what do I have to do? I have to be in very intentional on blocking out my schedule for, let's say, the next four weeks to make sure that I reserve that time for this thing that is really important during this season of life. During my next season of life, when I, I go from like finishing up the writing and all that to the promoting, then my kind of limiting factor shifts and changes. 
Yeah, I think that's so difficult. What do you do when you're uh, having a writer's block? I know we talked about going out for runs and things like that, but like, what if you are in that blocked time that you have specifically created for yourself and it's not happening? Oh, gosh. I mean, really, runs are the best thing or uh, walks. Mm -hmm. This is where um, my dog comes in handy is he is my cure for writer's block because he always wants to go for a walk. So short walks are great. But really, it's it, it's stepping away. Like I almost see it. It's almost like interval training for your brain, mm. right? You're in the thick of it. You're writing really hard. And then you get just blocked. What is that kind of the equivalent of? It's like being in the middle of a workout. All of a sudden you get super fatigued and you're slowing down and you're not doing what you're able to do. Well, how do you fix that? You can either call it for the day or you can just take a lot of rest and be like, you know what? I got to recover before I get this next repeat in. And, and that's kind of how I see it with writer's block is whether that rest is a walk or going for a run, whether it's getting up and just like doing something different for five, 10 minutes washing the dishes, cleaning the house, whatever it is that like takes my mind off of writing mode and occupies it with something else like that to me is is the cure. It's almost like that that restorative sense that that frees up my mind to kind of wrestle with whatever I was blocked on. And if all that fails, then I just go back to that exploration mode we talked about, mm. like go back, read something, listening to something you know, that's kind of related to the book. And I find that that getting yourself in that like reading consuming mode often frees you up to figure out how to deal with the problem. I love that. Yeah. You know what I do before an interview, like when I need to get in the zone, I almost always if I have time, if I'm not like rushing to the microphone, I will just put on music for like 10 minutes and like kind of dance around a little bit sometimes or like just kind of like put myself up to get in the mode of talking to someone because, you know, being on an interview, you have to like turn on a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. And if you're working from home and you're alone most of the day and you're not talking to people, it's like a weird shift. So I think finding those things that like turn you to the place you need to be is, is so important. Do you ever listen to music to prep for writing or talking on your podcast? Oh, 100%. What do you listen to? So I tend, this sounds really weird, but I tend to pick like one band. Okay. And just listen to them over and over and over and over again for a book. The same so, book. Okay. So the same thing. I, I get that because it's like a it's like a vibe. It's a whole vibe. Yeah, it's like I and I don't I don't know why I did this. I just kind of stumbled on it. But it's just it's like it's almost like my brain connects like listening to this like one band to like oh it's writing mode. Mm -hmm. Like let's get it let's get in the mode. So that that's what works for me, and I do that all all the time. And I think it's no different. You know, I'm going to tie everything back to running because that's what I do. It's a running podcast. But, you know, so it works. This is why I love this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's no different than like getting ready for a race, right? You have specific like rituals you might do. You might listen to music to pump yourself up. Or if you're like too amped up, you might like listen to a different kind of music to like calm yourself down or talk to friends to calm yourself down. It's the same thing regardless of what you're doing. Like if we're stepping up to the the mic on a podcast, 
like I do the same thing. It's a performance. Like if I'm sluggish, then like I'm going to listen to music or even like jump around a little bit or do jumping jacks, something to like get that energy flowing where I can be in the, the like focused state of mind where it's like, okay, I got to have my mind sharp and ready because Lindsay's going to ask like really good questions and I want to be able to give like the best answers that I can. And I'm not going to be able to do that if I'm just like languishing and tired and like, you know, out of it. So I got to get in the right state. Okay. We have to circle back around to the bands if you're willing to share what you listen to. But before that, I have to ask, you mentioned the social interaction and, I read somewhere that you said that like social interaction is perhaps like the most important key to recovery. And as we're talking, I'm just thinking about that because, you know, you say, oh, if I'm tired or fatigued, I might not be able to give sharp answers. But isn't it interesting how the second you actually have that social interaction, it kind of just wakes you up. You know, it's like, I, I'm tired this morning. I don't know why. I didn't sleep well last night. I kind of have a little headache. But the second we got on the line, I'm fine. I'm I'm awake. So talk about that social interaction piece as it relates to like recovery from training, but also just recovering from anything in life. Yeah. No, I think it's, it's one of the best things that you can do. And there's really good research on this uh, for, for two reasons, essentially. Um one is like we're human we're meant to like have social interaction it's one of our basic like needs so when we fulfill that need we feel better right we feel connected um this the other thing is it allows especially from a recovery standpoint is it takes you out of this like stressed fight or flight mode and puts you in what i'd call like a positive stress mode which is more of like a learn, recover, repair mode. So in terms of after um, training or after a race or whatever, you're so stressed physically because you just did a very hard workout that was incredibly stressful or a very hard race that was psychologically and physically stressful. You've got all these stress hormones running rampant, which is fine. Like that's what's supposed to occur. But what the research shows is that if you can switch out of that mode and in towards a more kind of positive, like open up, like accepting mode, then you're going to recover faster, right? Because the problem with stress hormones isn't that they they get high, they linger. Mm. And if they linger for hours, then we get that like, you know, run down kind of state. So shooting the shit with others, like talking with friends is the best thing that you can do because it's like our, it's our body's natural antidote. It's like, it gives this, this sense of calm and connection that you can't get up anywhere else. So yeah, after you've done something hard, like that's why as a coach, I'm always like engineering the cool down. Cause I'm like, no, go cool down with Together. your friends. Like don't do it by yourself, you know? Because you're getting, yes, you're cooling down, but you're getting that social interaction naturally. And it's the same thing with why, you know, coaches of all sports sometimes like, okay, let's have a meal right after the game or mm -hmm. right after the race. It's the same stuff. Like get the social interaction going and good things happen. Yeah, that's so good. Everybody should take that advice, advice in general. I have a um, 
group of women in my neighborhood, they're going to train for a 5K and I'm going to like write a plan and we're all going to go together. And um, one of the ladies suggested last night at 7.30, we go do our run walk. And um, I had already done my run for the day and I'm using this as like my social hour, right? Um, And part of me is like, 7.30 on a weekday? Are you kidding me? Like, I don't want to leave the house. <laughs> what a, You know, go exercise that late. But I just knew that that, like, dose of social time would just do so much for me emotionally. And I think sometimes we resist it because it's, like, easier to stay inside or, like, it feels like it's going to be a lot of work to, like, muster up conversation and get through the small talk to get to the real talk. But I don't, I can't really think of many times in my life where I've been like, I really regret going and like (laughs) socializing with these people, you know? Yeah, no, it's, it's one of those things that is often hard to get going, but once you do, you don't regret it. Yeah. And you know, same thing. I, I have the same experience and I'm by nature, like an introvert. So social interaction, I'm just like, Oh, I'd rather stay in and read a book. But like forcing myself to get out and go for a walk or run with my friends or meet them up for dinner or a meal or whatever. Like I just remind myself, I'm like, this is good for you. You never regret this. Like this will put you in a better like state of mind, like go get it done. And it's, it is, it's true. Like it always leaves me feeling better, more refreshed and even more energized for whatever else I have to do. Okay, what's the band? What's can you, are you gonna? Is this a big secret or can we hear? No, no, it's fine. Um, so for my current book that I'm working on, I listen to the band Churches. Okay, I've never heard of them. Um, and then for uh, Passion Paradox, I listen to Weezer. Weezer. <laughs> okay, interesting. One time I heard someone say they listen to. John Mayer nonstop when they were writing their book. And I was like, that's interesting. But some of his music, I could kind of see the like writing vibe. I, I don't know. I'm going to have to think about this if I ever write anything in depth. That's going to be a big deal. I'm, like right now, I feel like my default would just be Taylor Swift. <laughs> you know, that's 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 a good uh, a good pick. So I wouldn't complain about that. Yeah, one. her pandemic albums seem like they'd be good writing albums. Hey, friends, one more quick break here. Do you need a new GPS watch? Have you tried Koros yet? They are amazing. I've had my Koros watch since 2018. So many pros are wearing the Koros watch. Camille Heron, Molly Seidel, Sally McRae, Parker Stinson, Hayden Hawks. The list goes on. This watch has the most insane battery life. It's so easy to program your workouts. It just uploads to your phone too, like your Koros app on your phone, which then just uploads directly to Strava or Vida or wherever your workouts need to go. I highly recommend the Koros watch and they have lots of fun colors for the straps as well. So the cool thing is, is when you go to Koros.com and use the code another, you can get an extra band with your purchase. So make sure you add that extra band to your cart and then check out and use the promo code another. My husband actually just bought a Koros watch and he got me an extra band for my Coros watch with his purchase, which was super exciting. So if you're thinking about checking it out, go to Coros.com, use the code another and get yourself an extra band. And I can guarantee you, you will not be disappointed with this watch. All right, friends, enjoy the rest of my conversation with Steve Magnus. 
Um, okay. I want to direct everybody. I want to ask you a little bit about Nike Organ Project, but we won't talk about it too much. Um, I want to direct everybody to the Clean Sport Collective podcast you did, episode 26, if they want to like hear a deep dive on that because everything is talked about there. Um, but I am curious, and for those listening who might not know, Steve worked with uh, Nike Organ Project, Alberta Salzer, for a long time and then was the whistleblower on on everything that happened there. Um, in a nutshell, if you could just like tell us like how that part of your life changed your perspective on the sport and how everything is run. And, you know, then you went on to coach, you know, at a different university for a long time. And I'm just curious, like how it changed your perspective on everything. And that's a big question. Yeah, no, it really did. Um, because honestly, like whistleblowing was that whole thing was a major part of my life for probably 10 years. It's a long time. Which is not what I expected at the beginning when this happened. So, you know, I talked about we got to integrate things into your story. Well, that was kind of forced as like now a major part of my story, both for myself and then more so um to the wider world where it's like, oh, here's this thing that, you know, is in all the newspapers and then everywhere. So it's like, oh, people know me for this. Like, this is really weird. Um, so I just had to kind of come to terms with it. And I think in terms of how it affected my view of the sport, it gave me some much needed perspective on what was important and what mattered. Mm. I think early in my career, like everybody, I thought, you know, running fast times is what mattered. Coaching people to, you know, world championships or Olympic games or whatever accolades or accomplishments is what mattered. But this really focused me on none of that stuff really matters. Like it's, it's a game that we're all playing and sure it's kind of important and sure like I want people to accomplish their goals and, and and setting hard goals and going for them is important but we can't get lost in the sense that you know putting those accomplishments accomplishments above all else that just leads to bad places and I saw that firsthand with my work there and then the other thing that I think was really important and a lesson that I, I try to remind myself of today is that we tend to think of the world as kind of black and white as either like you're good or you're bad or you you do the right things or you do the wrong things. And I think humans like we're just it's just not that easy. Um, it's much more nuanced than that. And having been in the situation that I was in with the Nike Oregon project, I quickly found out and realized how important the people you surround yourself with are mm -hmm. in the environment you're in. And that environment and those people can either nudge you in a positive direction or in a direction away from things that you hold as like core values and you know if the organization and the people around you are strong enough like 
your core values don't really mean as much as you think they do. So like it really honed in on make sure in my life I have good people who um, reflect similar things that that I want or I strive to be and, you know, that are pushing me in in a good direction. And if I do that, like I'll be okay. That is fascinating to think about too because I've, I've heard you say that like leaving you know leaving that place um and, and Kara as well Kara Goucher it's like um it's like leaving a cult right like and so I wonder if we can all think about like where we are in our lives and the people we surround ourselves with are we surrounding ourselves with people outside that main group that we're hanging out with all the time and not to say that like our groups that we hang out with are cult like, like the Nike Organ Project or, you know, whatever, you know, a weird church cult or whatever. Um, but I just think that emphasizes the importance of making sure that we are extending our circles, right? Yeah. No, I, 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 it's like di- diversify your friend group and diversify where you find meaning. Yeah. And in and it's it's almost like you have to it's like a it's a hedge against like following falling into that like cult like atmosphere because it's so easy to do, especially when your identity and your self-worth and your financial whatever is dependent on it, even more so. Um so you just gotta like set your life up so that you have people that you know, have different point of views that are away from your, you know, inner circle or your, your kind of, yeah, your kind of inner circle who can call you back and call you out and be like, Hey, this is, this is kind of weird, Steve. Like, I don't know about this. You know, you need people like that in your life. So I'm, I'm very intentional to make sure that I have that now after having gone through that. You know, and you mentioned your identity. I'm going to give an, an, an example here and, and ask you a question on this. Um, so like in 2013, I mentioned I had a big surgery. I had a mastectomy. I'm positive for the BRCA2 gene mutation. And then I had all these interviews and everybody asks me about that. And I kind of like stopped talking about it a little bit because I was like, I don't want that to be like my identity, right? Like that's a part of my story, but like when people think about me, I don't want it to always be like, oh yeah, Lindsay did this and that was brave and courageous or whatever. Um, and so I kind of like moved away from it a little bit. And the reason I bring that up is because, you know, when you decided to do the whistleblowing thing, it's like how much of your identity then when people look at Steve Magnus, are they going to think, oh, he's the guy that did this, right? And it's like, that was a risk you took because you want your your work and your life and everything you've done to be like so much more than that. Like that was a huge thing that you did. And like the sport should be forever grateful for what you did. But like also all of your writing and all the other things. And it's like you want to be known for the other things as well. So did you calculate that? And um, how does that sit with you now? Yeah, you know, I think that was one of the biggest challenges. And I, I still remember it, actually. I was sitting in, um, sitting in my office, and uh, one of my good friends and mentors, like, the, the thing just broke, the Nike stuff just broke, and he was like, Steve, you might have just found the thing that everybody's going to know you for for the rest of your life, and I hope you're ready for that. <laughs> and, you know, 
it, it kind of is true. Like I had to come to terms with that. And I think I struggled with that at, at first because like who wants to n- be known as, you know, as, as good, as whatever, but who wants to be known as like the person who blew the whistle on this for the rest of their life? You know, I was in my, you know, late twenties or yeah, late twenties when I, when I blew the whistle. So like I've hopefully got a long life to live and a lot of things to do. So I didn't. And I think that was part of part of why I also branched away and branched out of the running world to make sure that like I had this extra space where people didn't know me through like whistle blowing and running. So I remember having these conversations with Brad when we first started to work together and started work on peak performance and begin the growth equation. And I was like, I just need this outlet where I'm doing some work in an area where people have no idea who I'm, who I am. Mm. And I think that was one of the best decisions that I made while going through this because it allowed me to like separate and have this other area of my life where I could get you know, meaning I could escape from the whistleblowing thing, do good work and not be like caught up in it. I love that. That's so good. Yeah, I'm sure that it was super challenging. This is kind of a maybe an annoying question, but um, like with the uh, clean sport and whatnot, right? It's a big topic. Um, what, what do you think needs to happen to like, like the incentives are so high, right? Like the stakes are so high. And I specifically think of someone maybe from like another country that grew up super poor, right? The stakes are so, so high. Like, oh my gosh, I can make millions of dollars and, and feed my village or whatever it is. Like, it's a really, really big thing like what do you think in the sport globally and nationally needs to happen to make it so that like it it's not so tempting to some people yeah you know people in that position I actually I have a lot of sympathy for for. because like it's so hard and growing up in the west like I wouldn't know what that's like but I think the answer is is kind of straightforward in the sense that you know we put a lot of fault on the athletes and rightfully so they're the ones taking stuff. But I think the system, if you look at, at drug use in sport is it doesn't, it's, it's not the one-off athletes that are often the problem. Like it's not the athlete who figures out, Hey, I'm going to go buy this performance enhancing drug online and use it. Like that is relatively rare. Normally, when people cross that line, it it comes with help. Mm -hmm. So we need to change like the punishments and incentives, I think, on the people who have more power, um, Mm -hmm. which are like the coaches, the agents, the organizations or sponsors or teams or whatever have you who like develop these cultures that make it like more easily accessible for athletes or push them towards doing this stuff. And I think that is, it's almost like the analogy of, do you go after the, like the guy who buys cocaine on the straight or do you go after the drug dealer? Sure. You know, 
And I think in our sport, we've often go gone after the guy on the street who's buying the stuff. And I think we need to put more emphasis on, okay, you know, the drug dealer for lack of a better, you know, term. And then I think this is my last question on this. <laughs> it depends on, it's fine. Depends yeah. on how your answer is. Um, it's funny when I started this podcast, I was like, I am not going to dive into doping stuff. It's just like, you know, it's everywhere and everybody talks about it. But and I don't and I haven't talked about it much on the show, but um, someone like you, I'm super interested on in your perspective. And uh, I'm married to someone who gets a little bit cynical about, you know, doping stuff. I mean, we used to be like tour de France, like we used to love watching that stuff. And now it's just like, blah, who's not doping? Um, so I'm curious your thoughts on like, how do we, uh, remain not cynical about it? And like when massive performances happen, how do we like celebrate that and not be like, Hmm, I wonder, you know, you know, that's, that's the hard thing. And that's, that's the battle that I fight too, is how cynical do you get? Because cynicism can like ruin your love for sport. Totally. Especially, you know, so I fight that battle as well, and I don't have the answer, but <laughs> but what I try and do is I root for people who seem like the good guys, and I know I said it's more nuanced than that, and it is, but having been in the sport long enough, like I have a decent idea of what coaches, what groups, what athletes are, you, you never know, but are more likely than not doing things the right way, and I direct like all my fanhood towards those people. So like, that's my solution. And if they do something crazy and impressive, then I'm like, you know, hundred percent fan. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. I try not to question it. Now there's other sides there are other people or other groups. And this is the part that sucks that I'm a little more skeptical, skeptical of. So if they do things that are kind of mind blowing, then I'm like, eh, well, you know, I'm just not going to pay attention to it. Like, I won't celebrate it. I'm not going to dog on them. Like, but I'm just like not going to even think about it, really. I'm going to celebrate the people who I can feel good celebrating and, you know, enjoy that aspect of the sport. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really important. I think that, yeah, I don't know. It's really hard. I like that advice, though. I like it. Um, OK, one more training question. And then we'll have to wrap up with end of podcast because we could talk forever, but <laughs> I'm going to try to keep us on track here. I know that, you know, I think any good coach knows that uh, individualized training is super important. And so as a coach of someone who's coached young athletes, professional athletes, how do you make sure that you are individualizing training? And as you grow with the athlete, I'm sure you like figure things out, right? So like, how do you, how do you do that? Yeah, so it starts with um, getting to know the athlete. Mm. So I I always see coaching as a partnership, and that partnership should lead to more independence and less dependence. So I always like start with the athlete, like asking them questions, like from their motivation to what's worked in the past to what hasn't worked. I try and with any new athlete I work with, I try and do a deep dive on kind of their past training um, and what's what's worked and what hasn't. And I'm trying to trying to essentially categorize them roughly and say, okay, you know, 
you tend to work better doing X or you tend to work better doing Y. And I start with that like big model and then I'm like adjusting as I go based on what I notice in training and what feedback they're giving me. And I think as long as you're open to it, that is like as long as you approach things with an open mindset and a learning mindset, that's the whole key to individualization. Where we go wrong is when we sit here and we say, you know, I believe in my training system and my training system is X, Y, Z, and it includes this workout and this much mileage and this approach. If you're married to that training system, you're not going to individualize. Instead, what you need to do is have like this rough heuristic, like this rough model of these things generally work. But let's look at the athlete sitting in front of me and see what they're bringing to the table. And I'm going to fit that into my kind of philosophy and beliefs. And then the last thing on individualization that I think is really important is having regular check-ins and dialogues. So... You know, whenever I'm coaching someone, probably once a month or during specific times in the period, we'll have kind of a organized like, hey, you know, how are you doing? How do you think you're progressing? You know, where do you think you're still weak? All of all of those things. And I take try and take that information and then change and adjust things um, in the training program or the coaching to make sure that you know, I'm listening and adjusting to their feedback. Selfish question. What's your advice to someone who's like a lower mileage runner, but still wants to run kind of fast? Because <laughs> like injury wise, like I probably, yeah. sh I probably sh shouldn't train over like 50 ish miles a week. Like I just, I get injured even if I'm doing strength training, if I do too many miles. So what's your advice? Like what should people that are wanting to like run a faster marathon, but they're sticking to like a 50 or less mile per week plan. Like what should we focus on? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think first it's good to have the awareness to know like where your kind of breaking point is when you get hurt. Like it's dumb to push through just because someone says, Hey, you need X many miles for the marathon. So in, in that case, what I'm doing is I would say, if we're talking about the marathon, I would say, okay, we're limited mileage. How can we get the best bang for our buck for the things that matter most? So in the marathon, it's like preparing your body to run 26.2 miles, which is we need something long. We need something prolonged fatigued. We need like some sort of steady running, right? And if that's going to take a big chunk of your mileage, then sometimes it's like you get creative with how you do things. So I'll give you an example for low mileage runners. Like, yes, the long run is important, but the other part of it is, well, we need some sustained like marathon pace work, but we can't, you know, go do a ton of mileage at it because our overall mileage is limited. So what I would suggest there is, well, how do you maybe create pre-fatigue so that instead of having to do I don't know, 13 miles at marathon pace, we can get away with doing eight miles and have a similar, similar strength training, you know, uh, stimulus. So you could do that in a number of ways. You could say, Hey, I'm going to do some sort of general strength training circuit for 20, 30 minutes before I go do my workout. You could hop on a bike and say, I'm going to go for a, you know, 30, 40 minute 
uh, bike ride and then go do my, you know, my workout. Or this gets a little more trickier, and I've I've only done this with with pros, but same deal as you can say, you know what, the marathon is about fueling, but I'm not going to go run 20 whatever miles to work on my fueling. So maybe I wake up um, and don't eat breakfast in the morning and go out and run 12, 13, 14 miles. And because I didn't eat breakfast, I'm already entering that a little low on fuel. So I'm going to get lower on fuel earlier in the run than than I would if I was fully fueled. Now, there's dangers in all of this stuff because it's like you're, you're changing the stress. But the overall thing is, if you're limited in terms of your mileage, I would think of, okay, how can I how can I shift the stress to increase it in a little different ways outside of just running more that allow me to get like that stimulus for adaptation so that I'm still getting um, some of those key features for uh, that allow me to prepare for the marathon. I've never heard that answer. I love that. Yeah, I don't know that I've ever asked a question exactly like that, but um I love that idea. Okay. Cause I always, I always do my, you know, if I'm doing like a leg workout or something, I always do that after a hard run. Ooh, put that in before the hard run and see how that feels. <laughs> yeah. It's not very, it's not very fun, but it, it works. You know, it's, it's actually, I borrowed that from the legendary, um, Arkansas coach, John McDonald. Okay. Who, uh, with his athletes would often have them do like their strength training and then on an easy day, he'd go out, they'd then right after the workout, go out and uh, run eight miles. And he was like, well, that eight miles is going to feel like, you know, 13 or 14 miles because their legs are going to be dead. So I, I think it has some, I mean, if John McDonald did it, then I think it has some merit. <laughs> Isn't that interesting when you come up with an idea, though? Like, somebody's got to be the guinea pig here. Yeah, I, I know. Right. right? <laughs> No, my athletes know that we, we, uh, several, I will be very, very clear with them, but I'd be like, I think this might work. <laughs> like I have this theory, but we're going to try this. So for instance, you know, real quickly yeah. in Houston, we don't have Hills, uh-huh, right? Uh-huh. It's all flat everywhere. Um, so with the university, whenever we were training for some cross country course that I knew was going to be super hilly, I was like, well, we're gonna be done for. So what we would do, and it worked pretty well, is I got this idea is, you know what? We have this like bridge, this overpass that's like a hundred meters, and that's our hill. So to stimulate a long hill, what we're gonna do is we're just gonna at the bottom of the hill, before you run up, before you sprint up, we're just gonna do like squats and burpees and all this stuff and then go straight into sprinting up the hill. And they hated it. <laughs> But then when we came to this really hilly course, they were like, thank goodness we did that crazy workout because our legs were dead and it prepared us for like running up this 800 meter hill. So sometimes you got to try crazy stuff. You just got to be honest with your athletes while you're trying it. Um, we, I moved from Indianapolis to Raleigh and I like Indianapolis is so flat and everywhere I go here in Raleigh, it is so hilly like I ran 10 miles on Sunday and I think my average pace was like 820 and it felt like my average pace was like 720 I mean it it is insane the difference that that it makes when someone is in a super hilly area like 
how does that translate to a flat course? I mean, I know I'm getting stronger because I'm running on hills all the time, but like, will I be, I, you know, like, will I be able to really run fast on a flat course? Because I'm like, I'm not trained to really run super fast anymore because I'm only running on hills. Yeah, I, I think it does. I think it, it translates like differently because you're, when you're running up and down hills, you're changing the strength component and you're also changing a little bit on, um, on what, how your muscle fibers are recruited. So you're like, when you run uphill, you're recruiting muscle fibers you normally don't. So that gives you like this added training effect. So it's great. And then when you run on the flat ground, like when everything's fatigued and tired, theoretically you can pull on these like muscles that fibers that don't really do much when you're running on flat ground. But when everything else is fatigued and dead and no longer using, you can, you can utilize these. So I think it pays off. The, the thing that I would say, and this is kind of my general rule of thumb is just make sure you're doing something that, that you're not normally getting. So if you're running up and down hills all the time and not running as fast as you normally would, well, go find a, a flat ground and just do some fast work just to turn over. So you get something like that. You know, it's the same with if you're at altitude, you run slower. Well, make sure you're doing something very short that isn't, you know, too fatiguing, that you're running really fast mm -hmm. and you'll be all right. Man, I love a day where I get to get on the treadmill and get off these hills. It is like, <laughs> I mean, and we we do have some flat on the greenways here. Like you can find it or you could obviously go to a track, but like, um, I've really been enjoying just like putting up the garage door, getting on the treadmill and doing like some shorter intervals. It just, I don't know. It's a break. Those hills, man, whew, they are taxing. Didn't realize I'd ever be in a place where I was going to be our neighborhood too. It's called North Hills. It is, <laughs> it is hills. Um, okay, Steve, end of podcast questions. You are already going to be a favorite guest of mine. So thank you so much for everything. I can just tell already like this interview. I just it's people are going to eat it up. Well, thanks. What is something professionally or personally that you would like to do that you have not done yet? All right. I'm going to give the cop out of all cop out answers. <laughs> but if you listened all the way to the end of this podcast, it makes sense. Um, I try and stay away from like like goals. Okay. And like things that I want to accomplish, um, probably because of my running career, but whistleblowing, all that stuff. So I just, I don't like, I don't do that. I'll tell you what I do instead. And I've mentioned it several times is I try to give myself the space to explore things that are interesting and explore them long enough to see if there's, there's something that like is there. So like, that is my goal on if you're asking, well, you know, what do I want to do? Well, I want to have the space or time where if something that that seems like it would be cool to do professionally or personally, I want to be able to like at least dabble in that and see if it's worthwhile doing. Do you have anything you're like, hmm, maybe I'll be interested in that right now? <laughs> um, good question. I mean, all of my recent work has been surrounded on getting this book project done. So most of that is 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 on is on that, which it's on redefining toughness. So that's my current interest. We'll see what happens next. Yeah. You know, it's like, how do we decide what we want to make time for? Right. Like ever since I moved here, everybody asks me, do you play tennis? Do you play tennis? Everybody here plays tennis. And I'm like, I've literally never played tennis in my entire <laughs> life. 
But it's starting to interest me because I'm like, could that be a social thing for me? Could that be really fun? I've always wanted to like plant a nice garden, but it's like, do I really want to make time for that? Do I just like the idea of the garden? Would I really enjoy the process of it, you know? And so I think, you know, and I think that's a lot of the work that you and Brad do is like trying to to decipher, like, does this make sense for my life right now? Yeah, 100 percent. And all I would say is like, that's that's my goal is if if gardening seems like something that's interesting, I want to make time so that I can at least attempt a garden. Yeah. And if I find out I hate it, great. You know, I just won't do it. Yeah. You know, figured it out. So like, that's what I'm trying to do. It's just like figure things out. Yeah. It's like, I want to, like, if I do it, I don't want to be thinking about the work I need to be doing. I don't want to be thinking about the fact that I should right now in this moment be prepping for my Steve Magnus interview. Like (laughs) the time that I dedicate to the gardening or the tennis, like I want it to be all in with tennis or gardening. And, um, yeah, that's, that is a struggle. Yeah, no, I think that's the struggle of modernity is like, especially we have so many things that pull our attention. Mm -hmm. So having something where you can be just focused on that is so vital and so important. Yeah. Uh, What is the best, most recent book you've read? Oh, man, my best, most recent book. So I would probably say 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman. Okay. So it's it's like a time management book, but it's really the anti-time management book because the title the title gives it away. It's essentially our average lifespan is about 4000 weeks. So if you're stressed out about optimizing everything, it's just not realistic and you're never going to do it. So like optimize for things that actually matter and then just realize that you're never going to accomplish everything you want to or get everything checked off on the do to do list and that's totally fine and totally okay. Yeah, we have to accept that. The beginning page of um the book The Midnight Library, which I have recommended to so many people. Have you read it? No. I won't I won't say it verbatim because I won't remember, but it's just something about like how you're never gonna be able to do all the things and be all the things and invest in all the things that you really like you want you want all these lives inside your one life. And like the fact of the matter is, is like it's just not possible. Yeah. No, I think like coming face to face with the reality is important. Like it's like a marathon. Again, me and my running analogies. <laughs> but it, it, if I go into the marathon and I think, oh, this is great. This is going to be a cakewalk. Well, it's going to be a disaster. If I have a realistic approach yeah. to like, you know, this is going to be kind of difficult. It's going to hurt really bad at this. Then I'm better prepared. So face the reality of what you're what you're doing. Yeah, I know. I don't want to think I it's like it's hard because I'm like, I can't think about that quote too much. It kind of makes me a little bit sad. But I think <laughs> we do have to be realistic and like just just try to just accept it. We accept it. Um, Who is someone fun, motivating or inspiring you would like to have coffee, tea or cocktail with? Is this person alive or dead? It, it can be anybody. <laughs> they can be dead. Uh, okay. Um. Gosh, there's so many people. Um. I'll just go like history nerd on myself. I think Abraham Lincoln would be fascinating. What is the, if you could ask him one question, what would it be? Oh, gosh. That's hard. Um. I think really, so in his case, it would be like, I don't know. I have no idea. But I think it would be something around the line of like, 
how do you keep your like keep optimism and resolve mm. when a country is falling apart? You know, because that's like what he was able to kind of do. And I think that's amazing. And I'd love to get into that mindset of like how how that's done, because it's astonishing. I put you on the spot there. I mean, let's be honest. If you were really having coffee to your cocktail with Abraham Lincoln and you could ask one question, you'd probably think about that question for a long time. You can't pull I, that out in an interview. I, I would. I know. That's where I'm like, I, I don't know. I but, can't answer that. You know. I love that answer, though. That's a fun one. Uh, okay, here's our last question. What message would you like to leave with the audience today? Oh, gosh. One thing. I would um, do real things with real people in the real world. People are losing their minds on the Internet. you know brad and i have spent a lot of time thinking about this and way too many of our conversations are in this but i'm not anti-internet i make my living off the internet so Uh i think it's it's great but i think we have to counterbalance that and be extremely intentional on counterbalancing that so yeah be intentional and getting out in the real world and as we talked about on this podcast, having social interaction with others and having people outside of, you know, just your kind of inner circle and diversifying your sources of meaning. And if you can do that, regardless of what you're pursuing, your life will be all right. I like that diversifying your sources of meaning. I can't tell you how many times I've like run down to the kitchen and been like, you know, this person said this or something to my husband. And he's like, the internet is not real life. Twitter is not the real world. And I'm like, I know, but it does infiltrate in your brain. And then, you know, like last night I went on that walk with those ladies and it's like, nobody's talking about that on that walk. Exactly. We're talking about our kids and like, if we're going to add on to our house or, you know, like what somebody went to the doctor for something like, and nobody's talking about that stuff. Exactly. You know, it's, it's true. You put it perfectly. Like it infiltrates our, our brain and there's a lot of good things about social media and Twitter and all that stuff, but there's a lot of things that make your kind of life distorted. So you just like, that's why that walk is great because it like recenters you and focuses you on like, oh, this thing that I thought was like the end of the world and everyone was talking about, well, you know, we're not. No one's thinking about it. Like, it's not as big of a deal as we think. So maybe I shouldn't get as angry about it. Yeah, I love that. Well, Steve, thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to talking to you again. What do you you probably haven't said the title of the new book yet? Um. So we just finalized it. It's called Do Hard Things. Ooh, good. Are you writing it with Brad or is this a solo project? No, this one's a solo project. Although Brad spent many, many hours talking about it. So (laughs) also a whole nother conversation, the importance of having friendships like you and Brad. Yes. No, it is. It is vital. That's so good. Uh, All right, Steve, thanks for your time. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed this. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you, Steve, for sharing your story, for sharing your message. You have so many great things to say. I know I took a lot from this episode myself, and I hope the listeners, I know the listeners did as well. 
Uh, you all can find Steve on Instagram. He is Steve Magnus over there. And you're going to want to check out his, his books if you haven't already done so. So many great books. He also has a podcast, The Growth Equation Podcast with Brad Stolberg. And you can learn more about everything he's doing at stevemagnus.com. Friends, you can find me personally on Instagram. I'm lindsayhine626 over there. Lindsay Hine on Twitter. And we have a great Facebook group. I'll have another as well. We'd love to have you joining our conversations over there. Uh, this podcast is part of the Sandy Boy Productions Podcast Network. I also host a podcast for parents. It's called Why Is Everyone Yelling? Something I find myself saying quite a bit. Check it out if you're interested in all sorts of topics related to raising kids. Friends, have a great rest of your day. Best of luck with your Boston taper. I hope it's going well if anybody's running Boston. And we will see you next week. Have a great Friday, a wonderful rest of the weekend. And we'll see you next Friday. Thanks for being here.